Hey, Stacy. Hey, Chris. How are you? Hey, I'm doing pretty good. I'm I'm curious if you have a number for us for this week. It's 465. And 465. What what is that? That's the number of Whole Food stores that are now owned by Amazon. Yes, and we can say now owned because we waited a little bit to get a sense of what was happening before doing the show rather than just rushing in like other people. <laughs> so this week we're going to be talking about Amazon's acquisition of Whole Foods and some more uh, monopoly power type stuff. Uh, Stacy is the famous Stacy Mitchell of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance out in Portland, Maine. I'm Chris, the less famous Mitchell of the Minnesota office. I work on broadband issues. Stacy works on independent businesses. And we're a part of the team here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance that's fighting to, to build local power, to make sure that communities are strong and, and that uh, you know we're all happy to wake up tomorrow morning. I think that's kind of a good summary. That's right. Let's talk about Amazon. Let's just maybe some, some basic facts that uh, to refresh people's memories and maybe people just heard about it without really getting into it. But, but what exactly happened? And, and to be clear, this is Amazon. It's not Jeff Bezos personally, um, as in the acquisition of Washington Post. I think those are important distinctions. That's right. So back uh, in mid-June, Amazon announced its intention to acquire Whole Foods, the chain of natural foods grocery stores. Um, and just about six weeks later, it was quietly approved by the Federal Trade Commission, or the FTC. It was approved with lightning speed and what uh, we can only assume was a fairly cursory review of the issues. And this is despite the fact that a lot of people, uh, including people in in uh, the food industry, uh, folks like us who study concentrated market power, um, legal scholars, members of Congress, a lot of folks had raised serious concerns about this merger. Uh, and yet it appears that the FTC approved it rather quickly and didn't take a deep look at what those issues are. Well, and you say appears. This is an interesting point that goes along with the speed, which is that we don't really know because what they issue three sentences in terms of their decision. Yeah, I mean, it's really remarkable, the lack of transparency. Uh, yeah, it was a total of three uh, very basic se sentences in their statement that said that this merger had been approved. And there's no further explanation in terms of how they chose to uh, look at this deal, whether there were particular things that they tried to evaluate, what went into their thinking. Um, and again, this despite the fact that there had been an enormous amount of public discussion of it, uh, and rather than, you know, sort of supporting that kind of action active democratic engagement and oversight, the FTC is basically this opaque black hole. We don't know what they looked at. Why is this something that rises to the level of us talking about it? I mean, what's the big deal? I think a number of people might just think, well, Whole Foods is just some place where, where relatively wealthy, young, often white families um, go, and, and who really cares about them anyway? I think the, the concern for me, is that Amazon has monopoly power in online retail. They're capturing almost one out of every $2 that Americans spend online. And they're also the place where, you know, 55% of all uh, uh, online shopping searches start. So people are no longer starting at Google or a search engine. They're starting directly at Amazon. So they have this tremendous market power online. And there are various ways in which Amazon is going to use Whole Foods to really 
augment and solidify its hold over online commerce. And it's also going to begin to kind of blur the lines between online and offline retail. And so what we're seeing is the beginning of Amazon taking its monopoly power online and then beginning to extend that into the physical world of retail. Um, And that has huge implications for all of us, for the the economy as a whole, for um, innovation, competition, for consumers, for workers. Um, So those are the deeper issues. Um, And it's easy, I think, to look at Whole Foods and say, well, they're a relatively minor player in the grocery industry. Um, As you noted, they're a sort of niche player for, you know, a set of sort of affluent, mostly uh, urban customers. Um, And that's true, but they're, they're a foothold into one of the most pivotal, important sectors of the consumer goods industry, which is, which is, of course, food. Yeah, when I think about St. Paul, Minnesota, where where I live and where um, I very much want to keep living, I think about um, good jobs and how to make sure that the community has not just high-tech jobs and jobs for people that have college degrees, graduate degrees and whatnot, but also jobs for people that, that may uh, only have a high school degree or didn't finish high school. And one of those places is the grocery stores because many of them are unionized. Uh, they have a, a means of employing people and those people know that they'll have a future. They have some job security. They have some decent wages and things like that. But I I think maybe you could just describe for us what life is like as a grocery store today because um, this isn't somewhere where they're like, oh, we'll just, you know, we'll just trim down our margin a little bit and we'll still be okay. This is sort of an area in which Amazon could make a huge difference because it's already kind of on, on a thin margin, right? Yeah, I mean, we've seen throughout Amazon's history, it has used um, its ability to lose a lot of money uh, in order to take market share. And so it did this for many years in books where it would sell books below its own cost. And of course, if you're a bookseller or you know a publisher, you can't compete with that because you have nowhere to make that up. You know, Amazon could do that because its investors were willing to allow it to post losses. So it sold books at a loss and then we've seen it consistently do this. It will strategically sell below cost in order to push competitors out of the market. So the question now is, are we going to begin to see that in the grocery sector, which is a very, you know, it's a sector with very thin margins. Um, How is that going to affect competing retailers who don't have the luxury, particularly independent stores, of losing money for years on end in order to stay in the market? Um, And also, how is it going to affect suppliers, farmers, and others? You know, the way that Amazon ultimately finances that below cost selling, you know, is partly, as I mentioned, through the willingness of its uh, investors, the willingness of of Wall Street um, not to require profits, but also uh, by squeezing fees and margin from suppliers. The food sector is one of the few bright spots in the economy. In fact, the Federal Reserve just came out with this book a, a few weeks ago, where they talk about how in both urban and rural areas, this sort of growth of local and regional food systems, um, food manufacturing at a smaller regional scale, uh, retail systems, and so on, that has been a real um, uh, driver for um, some some uh, goodness in local economies, some new growth and, and uh, economic vitality in places that were missing it. Uh, Amazon could really change that. Uh, it could come in and put pressure in a way that uh, pushes down uh, returns to those producers, to their workers. You know, we've seen this in the book industry. I mean, author, the average author income is down about 30%. Um, and many people in that industry say that's 
because of Amazon flexing its muscle and demanding bigger discounts, um, are we now going to see that same thing in the food sector? And as you noted, you know, a lot of grocery stores are unionized. Uh, and workers earn a uh, family-supporting uh, wage with benefits in those jobs. Amazon has a very different labor model. It has a kind of 19th-century labor model that pays very low wages, uses a lot of temps, uh, and increasingly automates jobs. Uh, so, so when we think about what this means for us on the you know the income side of the ledger in terms of our ability to get you know decent work to have thriving local economies, there's a lot of reason to be concerned. One of the reactions that I see from people is to say, well, you know, I, I really like Amazon. Amazon's a brilliant business in terms of how they do business. Maybe this will be terrific because Amazon uh, is going to lower the prices of food and things like that. Now, just ignoring for a second, obviously, that the cost may go up in the future. I'm curious for people who like Amazon, can you just cite some of the examples? You already you mentioned the, the books, um, but are there other examples in which we have a sense that Amazon will ultimately be abusing its power in order to run others out of business? Amazon has done this with upstart um, rivals in the e-commerce space. So one good example is Zappos, you know, the shoe retailer. This was a company that came along selling shoes online, really built a, a unique and beloved business doing that. And Amazon decided one day that they wanted to own that business. And they went to Zappos and tried to buy them. And the founders were not interested in selling. And so Amazon responded by beginning to sell shoes at a loss and offering free shipping. And Zappos, in order to continue to compete, had to match those. And it just started bleeding money. Um, it was just losing so much money that finally the company you know, just couldn't do that any, any longer. And they gave in. And now Zappos is owned by Amazon. We saw Amazon do this with diapers.com. I mean, they have a this pattern of using their muscle to uh, eliminate competitors that come along that might challenge them. And that's bad for consumers. I mean, at this point, I don't even know if a business that had a good online retail strategy could even get financing. I mean, who, what bank, what uh, investor would want to fund that given what we know uh, Amazon is going to do? I think that's such a key point and something that, that people don't always appreciate is that um, this impact in terms of who gets invest in investment to, to build those next businesses, um, it, will, it will prevent all kinds of ideas from ever coming out and we'll never know that we had lost them. Um, one of the things that, that you focused on in a recent uh, editorial, um, in which it was entitled, Amazon is trying to control the underlying infrastructure of our economy, and it was in Motherboard uh, a few months ago. Um, you know, you, I think people think of Amazon as another competitor, but, but you're arguing that basically Amazon is both um, the distributor, it's, it's basically the marketplace, and it's figuring out how to torpedo those who are using it. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like a Hollywood monster, frankly. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, the many-headed Hydra. Um, yeah, Amazon, you know, it's it's vastly more of a threat to competition. It's like an order of magnitude more of a threat to competition than, say, Walmart. Because Amazon isn't a retailer. It's easy to think of them as a retailer. They're, they're the biggest seller of, you know, books, toys, electronics, clothing, 
online or off. I mean, they're a huge retailer um, and we tend to think of them that way, but that's not really what they are at their core. Um, what they're interested in is controlling, as I said in that op-ed, the underlying infrastructure of the economy. Um, so they want to own the rails, essentially, that all the other businesses that want to sell you stuff have to ride in order to get to you. Um, so one of the, those pieces is, a, is the online platform. You know, I mentioned that most online shopping uh, now starts on Amazon's platform rather than going through a search engine. So effectively, they're precluding competition right out of the gate. They figured out how to do that. And for anybody else, any other retailer or manufacturer that wants to sell online, increasingly what that means is that they have to become a third-party seller on Amazon's platform because if they're just doing it through their own website, there's less and less traffic. There's less and less ways that anyone can even discover them because people are starting right on Amazon. And then the other two big pieces of Amazon's infrastructure, uh, one is the cloud. They control over a third of the world's cloud computing capacity. Everyone from you know Netflix to the CIA uh, uses uh, Amazon. And then the last piece that they're building out quite rapidly right now, in which the acquisition of Whole Foods is really helping them do, is shipping and package delivery. You know, Amazon is now freighting goods from China across the ocean. They've got uh, cargo planes that they've leased. They've got a big network of delivery points and warehouses. Uh, they've got their own trucks that they've leased. They're doing uh, their own deliveries in a growing number of cities. Their idea is not only to deliver their own packages, but to basically begin to displace UPS, the postal service, and become the package delivery service, again, that anybody who wants to have a package arrive on your doorstep is going to have to use. And, and the, the importance of this, it's just so critical because what it means is that Amazon, in effect, have set up a system where uh, it owns the rails and therefore it can privilege its own goods and products on those rails. Uh, if it wants to, you know, knock other sellers off and take the buy box for itself on its platform, it can and does that all the time. It decides we want to be a big player in apparel. Everybody else, we're going to shove to the side. So it's able to privilege its own goods. And then for the parts of the market that it doesn't really want to deal with for one way or another, um, it just levies effectively a tax. And you know, all those other companies that are selling goods that it doesn't doesn't really want to deal in, it gets a cut of that. Um, so it's incredibly powerful. And, and basically, Amazon can toggle back and forth between those two sides of its business in ways that amplify uh, its market power in the other. The best analogy in history, as I said, is, is the railroads. But in a way, this is a novel kind of setup that we've never seen before. And what is happening is that we are moving from an open market that's governed by democratic rules to a market that is effectively privatized, that is an arena run by Amazon as opposed to uh, run by a set of rules designed to encourage competition. Well, I think that leads to an interesting question, which is that you've convinced me and I, and I hope many other people that Amazon is indeed um, not winning on a fair level playing field. They are doing things to manipulate the playing field to benefit themselves over their rivals. And I think that is something we should be deeply concerned about. Other people just focus on how Amazon is incredibly innovative. And I, and I think none of us would deny that. They are very good at what they do, um, even um, just ignoring all the perhaps underhanded things, just the fact that they innovate, they find ways of driving costs down, they do all kinds of great technical things in an efficient manner. For someone who just looks at that side, let's just say that Amazon 
is not doing anything underhanded, but just is such a great competitor that they're going to run everyone else out of business because they're so good at, at running their businesses. Is that something we should worry about? Amazon is incredibly innovative. It's important when we think about this not to conflate the uh, technological innovations that Amazon has brought with uh, the implications of its market power. So there's this way, and if you if you look at how Jeff Bezos responds to questions about this, he's got a very clever way of essentially saying, um, you know, all these under other industries are being hurt not because we're uh, incredibly dominant, but because of this evolution in technology. And so we have to remember that we can have. Uh, the evolution in technology, we can have the benefits that Amazon has brought, and Amazon can continue to be a competitor while also uh, taking steps to ensure that competition is open. And the next company that's going to come along and invent a really incredible, great thing has a chance to get started because that's the problem right now. Um, you know, the next company that might have a great idea, there's no oxygen left. Um, they're going to be strangled in their infancy by Amazon before they even get started. You know, we used to, in the in the middle of the 20th century, in the early part of the 20th century, um, we used to take a much more aggressive stance with regard to promoting, proactively promoting competition. And in the 1940s, we went after AT&T. Um, and, the, and the federal government said, you know, you have to, you're sitting on all these patents for these great technologies. You have to actually license those patents. Um, and, and the federal government did this with a number of other companies. And the result was that, you know, AT&T continued to be there and continued to innovate. And these patents were then available to all these other companies. And overall, the economy society consumers benefited. So we got this best of both worlds. And I think that's now how we really have to begin to approach uh, Amazon. You know, incidentally, one of those patented technologies that was you know, required to be unlocked from the AT&T vault was for the transistor, which of course led to the whole computer revolution. Um, so I think that's, you know, the kind of uh, mindset that we need to take and framework we need to take when we look at Amazon. In that op-ed that you wrote on Motherboard, you quoted John Sherman, uh, senator and co-author of the Sherman Antitrust Act. He said, if we will not endure a king as a political power, we should not endure a king over the production, transportation, and sale of any of the necessities of life. And, and I think that's it's it's a remarkable thing is to say, you know, in some ways it kind of plays into this idea that even if there's an entity that's really, really good at something, we still have to limit their power because we're the kind of country that was built on the idea of decentralizing power and not letting anyone even if they're benevolent, be a king over us. That's absolutely right. And it really, it's a quote that really speaks to the political nature of concentrated power, that this isn't just about economics and markets. It's also that when you concentrate that kind of power economically, you in invariably have political power, not only over government, um, the ability to um, uh, persuade, uh, lobby, donate cash, otherwise affect what government does, but in effect, you know, you control people's livelihoods. There's this sort of centralization of power that means we as individuals are less free. Um, we have less liberty to go out there and ply our trade and, and operate in an open marketplace if that marketplace really isn't open but is in fact controlled by this one entity. And that's a political issue as much as it is an economic one. And we understood that for most of our history. I mean, from the, from the Boston Tea Party uh, really up 
until the 1970s, 1980s, there was this sense that the purpose of breaking up these concentrations of power, keeping uh, corporations in check, dispersing economic power, the reason for that was as much political as it was economic. One of the questions that I really wanted to hit you with, and I think this is one of the one of the harder ones a little bit is um, something I've heard. I heard a reporter framing it in this way, saying that when this reporter had started off, um, they were writing about Microsoft and how people were worried that Microsoft would use its power over the operating system in the 90s to dominate the whole future of computing and how um, that person does not own a single Microsoft product today. Oddly enough, this person basically said, you know, so we never had to worry about Microsoft, which I think is a totally false reading of history. But nonetheless, I think people would look at you, Stacey, and say, look, you said Walmart was going to kill everything and harm us. And now you're talking about how Amazon's going to kill even Walmart. So why should we worry about this when maybe the Amazon killer is right around the corner and, and this is the way things work? Amazon has not killed Walmart. And I think that's it's a good point. You know, as all eyes are on Amazon, uh, we should also, uh, you know, to take one eye back and look at Walmart. How Walmart has responded to Amazon's power is that they've gone out and bought up a number of internet startups like ModCloth, Bonobos, uh, you know, eliminated these rival companies that may have come along and given us a more diverse marketplace. And then they've also entered into this partnership with Google where they're going to be using um, Google Home as a way to do voice-controlled shopping. So essentially, we're facing this potential future where you know it's Amazon and Walmart, these two behemoths that will be you know interconnected into our homes through um, you know through the web, through voice-controlled speakers. We'll have this you know, integrated digital experience where you know we'll ask our Echo or we'll ask our Google Home to you know send us uh, you know whatever the things we want. They will choose choose the products for us. Um, and we'll have a, a closed marketplace where other companies can't break into that fortress. So I don't, I'm, I you know, continue to be incredibly concerned about Walmart's market power. They're a quarter of the entire grocery industry in this country and a huge percentage of everything else. There is a distinction, the one that we talked about, which is that Walmart doesn't control this infrastructure that, uh, you know, as we talked about with with Amazon. So Amazon is this different beast, but it's an illustration of how uh, monopoly, you know, and, and concentration tends to beget concentration on its own. You know, this is, uh, you know, not a transition, but really a further consolidation of the market. You know, can another company come along and unseat them? I think it's pretty remarkable that it's now been quite a few years since we've seen an internet company come along and change things. Uh, you know, Facebook, Google, Apple, Amazon, um, those guys are getting pretty old at this point. And there is no new entity that has come along, in part because if one gets to be too successful, one of those big companies either pushes it out of the market in a predatory way, or they buy it up. So how is it that we're going to see uh, a new competitor come along and, and, and challenge Amazon? You know, and there's something that I, I'm curious how you'd react to, which is one of the ways that, that I react to that is a, well, let's just assume that in eight to 10 years, another company is going to come along and defeat Amazon, and it'll be a new one. In some ways, I feel like, you know, we're a bunch of of, um, of cute beagle puppies that are locked in a ring with two warring <laughs> elephants, and they're like stomping right. around and sometimes falling over, and sometimes a new elephant comes in. You know, it kind of sucks to be the cute little puppies in that situation. Like, even if the... 
elephants change identities and things like that, it's not good for our communities. That's exactly right. And and you know, we spent you know, we published this report last November called Amazon Stranglehold. And one of the parts of the report that I think is um so useful um, is that we spent some time talking about the importance of a diverse marketplace. And this is especially true in the retail sector. You know, the more outlets that there are, the more different retailers that there are, the more chances that a company that comes along and produces a new product, the more opportunities they are going to have to be able to bring that product to market, to find one or two or three or a number of retailers that are willing to carry that and promote it to their customers. When that whole thing collapses and we just have a couple of dominant channels, um, if you're a small company or a new company, how are you going to get your product featured? You may, you may be able to get it onto Amazon's platform, but no one's going to see it if it doesn't show up in the search results in the first couple of pages or if it's not uh, otherwise featured or, or promoted. The same thing is true with shelf space at Walmart. Um, so we basically cut off all of this diversity. And those that new business uh, formation, that's where we get a lot of our innovation over time. The best new ideas come from those new businesses businesses. It's also the source of most of the net job growth. It's the vitality of our communities, all of those small and mid-sized businesses that make the places we live healthy, that give us a measure of control over our future at the local level because they're owned locally. Um, That matters. And one of the arguments that we've been making at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance is that it's not just a matter of taking markets that you know, have one or two big players and making the markets with, you know, four or five big players, then we need to think about market structure. That is, that having markets that have a mix of different size businesses that include lots of small and mid-sized businesses, as well as a few large businesses, that those industries are actually healthier. Um, and we know this from a lot of economic research. And that kind of mix also produces the healthiest communities and the healthiest democracy. And so the idea that we're going to have of, you know, Walmart and Amazon duking it out, and then maybe some other company theoretically might come along and knock, you know, Walmart out or knock Amazon out. That really does not present the kind of diverse economy that's going to yield all the kinds of benefits that we know we get when we tr- have a truly diverse uh, mix of businesses in an industry. I would reference the interview you did two weeks ago with uh, Gina Schaefer and talking about how when she built that hardware store in an area and how thrilled people were to have it there, how it helped lead to a revitalization of that neighborhood. These are the kinds of things that, that we're talking about, those sort of side effects. But I, I could talk to you all day, Stacy. I really enjoyed this conversation. I wanted to, to make sure that people are thinking about this as we, as we turn off this episode. Please go and rate our show wherever you found it, on the Apple Podcasts, on um, Stitcher, any other place you can find us. Please give us a good rating. Um, tweet about it. Tell your friends about this, these, these interviews. This show is edited by Lisa Gonzalez. It's produced by Nick Stumont. Langer and Lisa and the music is by a dysfunction Al it's a song called funk interlude uh, thank you everyone and thank you Stacy thank you Chris <laughs> <laughs>